Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Mouse speaking, and we're going to get the chance to speak with Peter Losha, who's an expert in tax. But we also find out all about Peter's background, his childhood, and what brought him to New Zealand. I really wanted to talk with Peter because, quite frankly, I meet a bunch of overseas people who are moving to New Zealand and who maybe haven't thought through what the tax implications of doing that would be. So while this episode is a little bit different because we get quite technical, I also think it's going to help out a bunch of people who are in that situation. If you enjoy this, then don't forget there's more than 300 other episodes in the back catalog, and there's lots more content at theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this conversation. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Peter Losha, who's from Peter Losha International Tax, and I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Very nice. It's a huge pleasure for me um, to join you in this conversation. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this because you and I have dealt with each other on a professional level, thinking about things like tax. And, you know, there's an old saying, um, death and tax, those are the two things inevitable in life. And I know that you've done a lot of work in terms of people moving to New Zealand and yeah. thinking through what the implications of our, are of that from a tax perspective. So we're going to dive quite deeply into that because that's a topic that actually I think is really practical for people mm -hmm. who are in that situation. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, I always like to find out about people's histories and backgrounds and you know a bit of your journey. So if we could rewind and go back, like when you were, say, four or five years old, where were you living and what was life like? Okay, so uh, that's a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I was born, um, people will, will acknowledge that uh, because of the accent. I was born in Germany, in the far west of Germany, um, very close to the Luxembourg-French border. Uh, a beautiful, uh, beautiful area of uh, the world famous Riesling wine. Um, I I lived there. I lived there probably until um, uh, um, I became in that age where you have to do something with your higher education. Uh, at that point in time, I moved to Berlin and lived for uh, eighteen or nineteen years in Berlin, and eventually ended up in New Zealand. Wow. And that childhood, the place you're describing, it sounds like it was quite an agricultural place then. Is that right? Like beautiful settings in terms of yeah, yeah. I mean it is uh it it, it was uh, I think I think um it, it it has a huge history of Riesling wine. Um, right. probably the most famous Riesling wines are coming from the Moselle River. Um it's a very historical place with a lot of Roman uh, Roman buildings. Um, it was, uh, you know, the place where I was born was the biggest Roman city outside of um, outside of Italy. Um, wow! Quite an interesting, interesting cultural background as well. Uh, when when I, I mean the the region when I lived there um, was kind of a cul-de-sac um, because um, uh, uh, there was the French border, there was the Luxembourg border, and it was a it was a border, so you had to cross the border to get to a different country. And with the with the changes in the European market, 
um, with the Treaty of Maastricht and the Treaty of Schengen, uh, all these borders disappeared and that changed the region quite tremendously. So uh, the region, you know, historically, you're absolutely right. The region was a agricultural reason, but uh, considering the the amount of uh, uh, European administration, which is situated in Luxembourg, that has significantly changed. That's really interesting to me. And I'm really curious the bit you mentioned about the Roman side of things, because, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's true history, isn't it? Because <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's right. What, that's right. what was that like growing up, kind of seeing things that were, you know, potentially built thousands of years ago? What, yeah, yeah describe yeah, I mean, what that was like. Yeah, I mean, you you see, when you when you when you grew up in in such a region, um, you know, the all these old Roman gates, uh, all uh, the old Roman bathhouses are forming part of of your heritage. And you feel like it's normal, <laughs> you know, it's nothing, right. nothing special when, you know, when you get to that age um, uh, beyond f- four or five years, when you realize, oh, my God, my God, that is actually quite unique. Uh, that changes the perspective, you know, I mean, I, I remember that um, um, my father was a winemaker and we had um, uh, we had a paddock uh, where we grew corn for the horses we also had a bloodstock business and every time um, uh, they worked on that area uh, they found old roman pieces and uh, um, uh, over the years you know the pieces became bigger um, and even columns old roman columns and i remember as a six seven year old boy um, that the that the um, the local museum started to excavate the area and they found an old Roman villa, so that was pretty amazing when you are as a kid sitting beside the excavation site and you see old mosaics, you see old um, uh, interesting things uh, which form part of your heritage. That's a really good observation, and the thing to me is. I always view it as like, we know what we know, you know, like right today I'm living, but for you to have that sense of history, like somebody created these mosaics or somebody built these columns 2000 years ago or whenever it was, it's just a different perspective, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially, you know, now as, as I'm living in the so-called new world uh, where the, where the history is far shorter, you know, um, uh, and the history here started with the occupation of New Zealand by um, people from the South Pacific, you know, um, and and also um, the heritage sites in New Zealand are old, but they are not uh, two and a half thousand years old, and uh, you know, built of of uh, different material and built for different purposes. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. At Christmas, we're going back to Europe for a trip. And yeah. one of the things is we're going to take our children to Rome so that we can see the Colosseum with them yeah. and just give yeah. them that sense of place in history. Because yeah. so often we're caught up in our own individual lives that we forget <laughs> that there's a bigger scheme of history, isn't there? <laughs> and, I, and I mean, very interesting, um, very interesting side story. Uh, my my mother passed away a couple of years ago. And when we went through the belongings of my mother, we fo- found an old signature stone. And um, uh, that was really interesting because one of my cousins said she also has such a signature stone, you know, of exactly the same. And the signature stone shows a little lion 
um, and it is a it is a stone they used uh, to stamp documents. So what we what we did is we went with the with the signature stone uh, to the um, to the local uh, museum, and they were really excited to see the stones uh, because uh, in 200 BC a Roman family left the area, and they nominated a notary public. Um, to be their representative um, after they left. And the museum considered, because the family has two of the signature stones, that our family was the notary public for that Roman family. And uh, very interesting for me was that we could even see documents uh, where the signature stones were used to imprint the signature in that document. And, um, you know, as I said, the documents were 1,800 years old. Wow. So those stones had been passed down for that long, huh? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And um, it suddenly um, it suddenly gives you a total different perspective, you know, uh, in, in terms of your own family. And um, and I mean, um, the in, the interesting part is um, that my sister said uh, the family was always in the legal trade. <laughs> So maybe if you go back generations and generations, huh? There was somebody there um, with the power of attorney. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And um, yeah, it is. Uh, it is an interesting. You know, suddenly you you keep this signature stone very close to your heart, and you realize the history of that little little piece. And tell me a little bit about your father and the the work. So he was actually uh, he was in viticulture and wine. Was that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, my my family was in the wine business for um, a couple a couple of hundred years. Wow. Um, uh, and uh, the my my mother's side um, uh, was in the in the in the legal in the legal area. So uh, um, more in the administration side. Uh, and my father was a, or my father's family was a winemaking winemaking business. Over the years, my father changed. Uh, uh, from producing wine to f merely concentrate on bloodstock. Um, so I, you know, when I grew up, I grew up on a farm and we had 60, 60 horses, 60, 70 horses constantly around. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. That is, it is, you know, uh, I mean, when you compare it to New Zealand in New Zealand, you, you meet people and they grew up on a farm and they had that wonderful, uh, childhood, uh, experience, you know, uh, um, to to grow to grow up with with animals uh, in uh, and not in a big city, you know, um, and it is something which is quite important, a very important part of my life. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. So growing up in that environment, like let's talk through your in high school, for example, did yeah. you have an idea of what it was that was interesting you, what you wanted to study, or what sort of career you might have? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, for me, it was absolutely clear that um, uh, I, I want to go into the legal trade. Uh, and it was also clear that tax law is what interests me. Um, and um, uh, when when I start my, started my working career in 80, 86, um, um, I merely focused on um, on domestic law. Um, and um, the, inter the interesting factor was, uh, for me, I realized that the European market opens, and um, I've, I developed an interest in, in the European GST legislation, 
um, and how did how the goods and services tax or the value added tax uh, is changing Europe and how a common market will will operate under that model. Um, so that was something I focused uh, in the early days of my professional career um, uh, very strongly. Um, then I, I focused on the introduction of the euro and the impact of the euro um, to the market. And also very early um, in the beginning of the 90s, I already started thinking about what the digital, digital economy, the impact of the digital economy uh, to tax law uh, and jurisdictional ring fencing and, and all that kind of stuff. In, in, interesting for me now is... Um, uh, you know, you know. I mean, in '92, I did a master, and I wrote a masterpiece, a, ma a master thesis about the impact of the um, of the digital economy to um, the domestic uh, value added tax tax take. And very interesting is that here, you know, I'm now close to the end of my professional career, and that is still not solved. Um, so that is quite for me quite interesting to see. Um, you know, the time span. Uh, in between, the market develops so quickly and rapidly, but legislation and procedures in the back are very static. Yeah, that's true. You've had a, a real lens on history in some ways. And yeah. just thinking about the time when your career was beginning, like in Europe, there was a lot going on, wasn't there? Because you Absolutely. had the wall coming down, you had, Absolutely. you know, the Cold War, you had all this change in turmoil what was that like as a young person you know coming in with your career beginning and then seeing all this change that's going on do you remember the i guess the attitude of yeah yeah it is interesting when when you when you reflect in the hindsight you know uh the events were actually it was a really short time period you know all these events occurred very quickly and uh, when you think about the wall came down in november 89 and uh by mid 90 uh, not a year later there was the german reunification with with all problems you know it is not um uh, it's wonderful to say oh both countries need to amalgamate again but that's not so easy you know um i mean i remember at the time uh, it was a it was turmoil you know i mean I, I worked at the time for the german government agency as a as a as a lawyer um, considering the impact of tax law uh, to the amalgamation. And now in the hindsight, I have to say, oh my God, it was only six months. You know, it was not three years or five years. It was only six months. And um, surely there were mistakes making, you know, there's no argument about that. Or in the hindsight, you could say they should have done this or they should have done that. Um, but it was only six months. And it is interesting. In a way, our whole conversation is about looking to the past so far, because we've been talking about Roman, you know, buildings and, and all this types of things. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's just the contemporary history. It's it's actually not that long ago, but already we can yeah. probably look back and, and think about it. So your role then at that time, had you had tax like, I wouldn't say that that's an area that I would naturally gravitate towards, but was it something that had always interested you or intrigued you? Or Absolutely. how did you end up specializing in that? Absolutely. I mean, I um, uh, when uh, when I um, did postgraduate um, work at the university, um, I uh, became really interested in the difference between common and civil law. 
Uh, so most most of Europe is uh, is civil law uh, civil law countries. Uh, most of the Anglo-Saxon uh, countries are common law countries, and that was really what uh, uh, caught my interest. Um, so I I did a lot of work um, around um, uh, the issues when people are uh, doing cross-border investments, uh, and they're for example using uh, the um, the English concept uh, of a trust um, versus uh, you know how that fits in uh, into into a civil law jurisdiction. Um, so that uh, was where I academically did a lot of work and was thinking about how that impacts um, the world. And uh, interesting was um, uh, when the wall came down, uh, a lot of wealth in the in the former East. Uh, was required to be given back to the original owners. Um, right. And um, so I worked uh, with um, the government agency who transfers, transfers these assets back. So we had a lot of dealings with people in the United States or people across the world uh, to simply ensure structures are in place where assets are getting transferred into or assets are getting transferred out to. And uh, what that means for... Uh, for the tax impl implication of the country where the asset is situated and the country where the uh, where the person is living. And I mean, again, that all was in a very, very short time period. And uh, I remember that um, the OECD in, in Paris um, invited me a couple of times to talk about these uh, issues. And uh, I went to the OECD as a as a as a um, rep for the government organization who actually uh, ensures that the assets are getting transferred back within within the legal framework. And that was where I met uh, New Zealand. <laughs> ah, so, I see. Uh, at the OECD, I met the New Zealand uh, chair and um, we had a lot of discussions in terms of international tax and uh, changes which, which need to be made and uh, operational projects and so on and uh, they engaged with me and asked whether or not I could see myself for a couple of years working uh, for a New Zealand government agency. Just before yeah. we talk about that and how you ended up in New Zealand are you saying um, you know that so the reunification is happening and then assets are actually returned to the to the generations later of families yeah. who'd been yeah. Had it taken from them? Is that the yeah, process? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, in 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 uh, what what happened after the Second World War with the creation of East Germany, all assets in East Germany were literally government-owned assets. So the the government occupied all the wealth, and they they uh, they maintained the wealth. And when the wall came down, that wealth needed to be repatriated to the original owner. And uh, I mean, that is an, an easy terms what needed to be conducted. And also, uh, you know, look at areas in Berlin, like the Potsdamer Platz. Uh, you know, the Potsdamer Platz was literally uh, an area where the wall went through. Um, and all these pieces of land were originally owned by people who live now, the offsprings are living everywhere. And uh, investors were really interested in developing that land. So investors want to get assurance that if they're going to build the Potsdamer Platz in Berlin or rebuild the Potsdamer Platz in Berlin, they want to ensure that the, the ownership um, is clarified. 
So for that reason, um, we we had the terrible task to verify at what point in time the asset was um, um, uh, removed from the owner and whether or not it needs to be re, uh, repatriated back to the offsprings of the of the original owner. I can almost Im- imagine the complexity around that as well. Yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. finding yeah. well, who is the descendant of the person yeah. and. How do you trace it? And yeah, it's really yeah, 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 yeah that's right. And I mean, uh, 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 I mean, you when you when you look at that population, approximately sixty percent of descendants are coming forward and saying uh, this piece of land was originally our family and got occupied, and we want to claim ownership. But of that group, a significant amount of people simply want to take advantage. So right. you would. You know, it might be that, uh, and I mean, it might be legitimate advantage, you know, it might be that there are seven cousins and one cousin want to claim ownership, but uh, there are seven cousins and they all own one seventh of the property. So, uh, and you have these people who claim uh, that the documents got destroyed and no one can prove the ownership anymore. I can almost (laughs) not imagine the complexity of it all. So you end up hearing about New Zealand in your involvement in all these things. And what was your first impression? Did you know much about New Zealand? Like, was it appealing to you as an, a concept? Yeah, I mean, uh, we we uh, at that time I was in legal practice in Berlin, and my my business partner had kids, and I did not have kids. So my business partner always did um, did uh, his leave during school holidays in the summer, and my leave was always in winter. So historically, for a number of years, we traveled in winter the Southern Hemisphere. And funny enough, we always ended up in New Zealand. So we knew New Zealand quite well uh, when the approach was made, whether or not I could see myself living in New Zealand. And for that reason, I was quite receptive to the offer. So you end up here. And just tell us a bit about the work that you did. And I'm keen to find out what you're doing today as well. So we're just going to have a a shorter version maybe of of the work that you were involved in because i think it involves double tax treaties and you know yeah. giving input on a legal yeah. level for governments yeah. yeah so what uh what when when i came to new zealand uh, uh my role i was principal advisor international and my role was um uh 50% operationalizing war. Uh, and the other 50% was um, seeing whether or not the law needs to be amended to give a better policy outcome. Um, so one of the uh, first things I did was the New Zealand Foreign Investment Fund rules, uh, the New Zealand Controlled Foreign Company rules, and uh, the financial arrangement rules, and so on. And when I'm saying operationalizing, I mean that uh, you need to ensure uh, the integrity of the tax system. You need to ensure that the law is, uh, is, um, uh, can be applied and that actually people are complying with the law. And um, it sounds glamorous, but sometimes um, when you are in a country where international, uh, international tax law was never ever considered to be easy to be applied, uh, it becomes quite a challenge, and especially in a country like New Zealand, where you have a significant amount of migration. Uh, you know, when you when you look at a European country, uh, the migration, the people who are migrating to uh, Europe are far less than uh, than in New Zealand. 
Yeah, you're right. It would have different complexities. That's for sure. That's right. And you know, when you when you when you think about when you think about uh, to ensure the integrity of the tech system, you need to look at a base population where people really try hard to comply, and uh, others who are simply ignoring their obligation and simply live their life in New Zealand and ignoring that their offshore wealth will trigger will trigger a tax consequence in New Zealand. To, to give you a very simple example, which is, is adopted now worldwide, um, and New, New, Zealand, New Zealand did a very simple thing. We looked at um, the usage of foreign credit cards in New Zealand over a certain period, over a certain amount, to simply verify the compliance of the individuals involved in the tax return. And that project was an eye-opener because what we realized is that New Zealand has a significant amount of uh, residents with significant wealth offshore who simply either don't know or simply ignore their obligation as a result of these assets. Well, that's where we're going to go with this conversation, because I think it ties in nicely with a theme that you and I were chatting about, um, I think it was last week. Yeah. Um, yeah. But just before we do that, I am just curious, because you've been in some of these, you know, intergovernmental meetings and conferences yeah. and things like What's that like? Because the average person listening, we haven't been part of delegations to talk about tax treaties or, you know, yeah. how do governments relate yeah. from an outsider's perspective? Yeah. what? How does it work? Is it end up being that there's individuals from different groups that know each other can work together? Yeah. Or is it more like, you know, I'm the Canadian delegation and this is the Chilean delegation and we're in a room talking? Yeah. Any thoughts about that? I mean, first of all, um, there is a strict procedure between um, a, st a strict framework how these countries can um, can work together. And it's not, you know, when you when you are coming from the outside world, you always think, oh, the, the U.S. going to call New Zealand and they're going to have a chat. No, it's not that easy. It needs to be under a strict procedural framework. And when we are talking about tax, we are talking about a competent authority who is able to con consult with the competent authority of the other country and they can discuss tax technical matter matters or taxpayer specific matters so so it is not uh, not that easy you know when 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 i started with inland revenue in new zealand i thought um Operationally, there's far more uh, cross-border sharing or cross-border discussions about certain things. And that is absolutely not the case. It has changed in the last in the last um, in the last 15, 16 years, but it is still not what business would do, you know. I mean, if if you have a if you have an accounting or law firm which works across the border, it is very easy for uh, one of the big four firms to simply call uh, their, their firm in the United States and have a chat. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the government framework, that's not that easy. Um, uh, there, there are working parties at OECD level. They are very non-taxpayer specific. Uh, if it if it if it is taxpayer specific or if it is um, very specific in terms of a situation 
happen in one country. You need to enter into a bilateral discussion or a multilateral discussion and follow the strict procedural requirements. Yeah. Um, so that is... Um, a kind of a, a difficult a difficult task uh, for me coming out of the out of the uh, private practice as we describe it um, i mean for me for example uh, when when new zealand uh, had a very successful project in terms of tax uh, for me it was very important to share that with our closest partners uh, which are, for example, United States, Canada, Australia, a couple of European countries as well. And uh, and you immediately think uh, the same model should be adopted in these countries. Uh, you can do that. It's a, it's a painful project and it takes time. Yeah, well, I guess that in some ways confirms some of my suspicions, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's just interesting to think because we, we give uh labels to things and you know nation states and sovereignty and and how they end up then reacting or interacting yeah. or cooperating or not cooperating yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and and these are quite fundamental points and yeah. i'd love to talk a little bit so today um maybe talk through how you came to set up your own new zealand based practice and and what okay. you're doing yeah. today and then so, i would love um, to get into the question of if people are overseas moving to New Zealand, what are some key things they should think about? Yeah. So um, you see, when uh, when I started my engagement with Inland Revenue, it was always clear that I only work for Inland Revenue for a couple of years, you know, to get the get certain areas of the law operationalized and clarified. Uh, and as it is always, you know, uh, you 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 realize suddenly, oh my God, it's fifteen years. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. uh, I exactly came to that uh, uh, to that point in my life that I thought I come out of private practice. I had a detour to a government agency to simply to understand what really goes on and also uh, to to increase my knowledge. And suddenly I was at that point in my life that I see it. Um, uh, I need to I need to have a career change again. So for that reason. Um, I terminated my engagement with Inland Revenue, um, upset a lot of people within the department, uh, but however, and um, started my own consulting business. And so what is your focus now? So my focus is um, migration to New Zealand, investing into the New Zealand market or investing um, uh, into a foreign market um, uh, and very strongly um, how the double tax agreements, uh, the multilateral instrument, and also uh, the uh, the information sharing is working to ensure people have all information uh, when they're either considering to live in New Zealand or when they are considering to invest into New Zealand. And this is the point that I think is going to be interesting for some people listening who yeah. are from overseas and maybe they've gotten visas to move here. Um, maybe they have plans to set up a business here because you and I both know that New Zealand Aotearoa is, I would argue, <laughs> the most beautiful country in the world. And, you know, the time zone is actually pretty good. You can be in contact with the US, Asia, yeah. you know, you can deal with Europe. So um, I'm just curious from your perspective and given your years of experience and actually involvement in drafting some of these documents and um, policies and 
double tax treaties and things. Mm. What are some of the pointers that you would say for somebody, say, let's take a hypothetical person. They're a founder of a company in the United States Mm -hmm. and they still own the majority of the shares and they're Mm -hmm. planning to relocate and live in New Zealand. Mm. What are some of the things that they should be thinking about? So the 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 first most important thing is um, is the policy framework in New Zealand, which is distinctly different to the policy framework of other countries, and that is something I always track people back to. So everyone needs to understand that in New that New Zealand has a broad base, so we have a broad tax base, and we have we have low rates. So when I'm saying low rates, people would say, um, you know, 33% tax is not low, but you need to see it in a wider framework. And that 33 cents in a dollar is a lot lot of government services included, basic health, basic retirement, uh, all these additional things are included in that 33 cents in the dollar. And when you compare it with the United States, you know, you have your income tax rate and you have social security taxes, and both together uh, push you quite up quite up in the tax rate so so that is something which is interesting to keep in mind broad base means the weirdness of the new zealand tax system is sometimes a surprise for migrants and because it is a surprise to migrants new zealand has created an exemption period and the exemption period lasts for four years after you migrated to New Zealand. Important here is you must not be a tax resident before, so you are a new migrant to New Zealand or returning resident after the absence of a period of at least 10 years. So then you are exempt on foreign passive income for a period of four years. And these four years give you a chance to firstly consider whether or not you want to live in New Zealand and you want to commit because the stats always say that um, a certain amount of people, they come to New Zealand for a couple of years and then they're going to leave again. And secondly, it enables you to restructure your affairs within that four-year period to verify whether or not, you know, to make it future-proof, to ensure uh, there is no adverse tax consequence. So that four-year window is a very important window, and uh, everyone should consider to utilize it. So usually, well, in 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 my function, very often we we have that four-year time window, and we put dates in the calendar of each and every person where we have to discuss whether or not trusts need to be restructured, whether or not dividends need to be paid. So that that's one area. The second area, which is a really important area, is that there is tax residency of an individual, but also there is tax residency of entities the uh, individual is associated to. And that's something which I urge people to verify before they move to New Zealand. And I give you a very simple example. A lot of US uh, 
uh, investors have their property portfolio in so-called fiscal transparent entities. So in the United States, you have a house, you rent that house. The house is in a corporate, you know, to ensure you have the corporate veil and you, you might not be sued by the tenant when he, fall, when he or she falls down the steps. So the, the property is owned by a corporate, but the corporate is fiscal transparent. Not a corporate is taxed, it is the individual who is taxed. And it makes absolutely sense because in, in a lot of circumstances, uh, properties derive losses and the shareholder wants to have these losses in their tax return. However, when that person moves to New Zealand, that person is a transitional tax resident, no argument about it, but the entity, the entity becomes a tax resident of New Zealand. And now we have that problem that we need to consider how the double tax agreement applies. And also we need to consider what is the consequence of an entity being fiscal transparent. And um, from, from my experience, that is something a lot of people are not considering before they move to New Zealand. And um, they are also not discussing that issue with their U.S. advisor and what it means um, when, when the director of a U.S. LLC relocates to New Zealand and sits in New Zealand um, and now has a filing obligation. And um, it's, it's, uh, it needs to be considered on arrival to New Zealand because if the LLC becomes a tax resident, there are certain steps which needs to take place to ensure we don't have an adverse tax consequence. Well, this is really helpful. Thank you. And I'm sure some people listening are kind of regretting understanding this in a new way. But at the same time, you have to know what the consequences are, don't you? Yeah. So yeah. just to put it in really practical terms, because um, I think that may be helpful. What you're saying is that if, for example, a U.S. citizen has an LLC or a limited liability company in the U.S., when they step off the plane in New Zealand with the intent to live in New Zealand, they're automatically becoming a tax resident in New Zealand personally, but also potentially converting their U.S. entity to become a New Zealand tax entity. Is that Correct. right? Correct, correct, correct. Yeah, and the and uh, you see the the, the difference. Um, I mean, the the difference you can or the distinction you can draw is you have someone, someone who has a shop in New York City, you know, and that someone moves to New Zealand, and the shop in New York City is um, is a corporate. Uh, there is no argument that the company becomes a resident of New Zealand, and. The double tax agreement, the double tax agreement between the United States and New Zealand would look where is the place of effective management, but that only applies if the U.S. entity is liable for tax. If the U.S. entity is not liable for tax because it is fiscal transparent, the treaty, the double tax agreement does not apply. And that's the crooks here. 
So this is really important. And, and obviously on this show, we don't normally go into as much detail about tax arrangements between yeah. countries, but yeah. I really want to drill in. And I so appreciate your wisdom here because I know it's going to be helping some people, which is actually the intent for the podcast. Yeah. So what could a person who right now is listening, they're based in the US, for example, and they're about to move to New Zealand, yeah. what would the practical steps be that they need to be taking or talking with their advisors about yeah. in so terms the, of... There, there are two solutions here. One solution is that the director in New Zealand is not making any decisions for that, in, uh, for that entity while in New Zealand. Okay. Right. That is, that is one possibility, and that is practically possible. But when you think about situations that we get a travel ban, it is nearly impossible. <laughs> and I um, see. So that would be instead of joining the Zoom call to make a decision or something while in New Zealand, you would need to be traveling back to the country and correct. be part of it there. Yeah, correct, okay. correct. And uh, some people are doing that. They are pretty strict and they're saying, I'm flying four times a year to Los Angeles. And that is where we meet the accountants, the lawyers, the managers, and we make the decisions. We sign the documents and so on. So uh, if, if Inland Revenue, for example, is doing an audit and Inland Revenue finds companies' documents which are signed while the person was in New Zealand, then that makes that company a New Zealand tax resident. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And that is one possibility. The other possibility is, and I know that a lot of US uh, CPAs or a lot of US lawyers don't like it. The other possibility is change the company offshore from being fiscal transparent to some which is opaque. So make the corporate liable for tax in the United States. So that's going to go over the heads of lots of different people. But um, I think what you're saying is like an LLC, you would actually change it from that to being like a C-Corp. Yeah, is that yeah. sort of what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, then, so then the entity in the States would be paying the tax that it needs to, and it okay. wouldn't be kind of um you know the the footsteps of the founder <laughs> and shareholder wouldn't yeah. be tainting back to the entity that's offshore correct correct because then yeah. then the double tax agreement applies and the double tax agreement would tie break the us llc to the country where the place of effective management is situated and Got it. When you think about a rental company, a rental company will have a rental manager in the United States and the rental manager will do all the decisions, the day-to-day -day decisions. And that means because the company pays tax in the United States, we look at the place where the effective management takes place and that is the United States and the company would tie break towards the United States. And, you know, in the, in the wider scheme of things, it is important because for four years, the individual has an exemption in New Zealand. Okay. So, 
um, a simple example is you have an you have a, an apartment in New York City and the rent is annually hundred grand. The cost is only ten grand, so the company makes ninety grand a year. The shareholder in the four years can withdraw the ninety grand without triggering a tax obligation in New Zealand because of the four year passive income exemption. But if the entity is a New Zealand tax resident, then it is fully fully in the New Zealand tax base. And uh, that is the adverse tax consequence. It's a really interesting area. And to think about all the consequences, and particularly like we said at the start, like these are kind of people aren't pre, there's no knowledge about it. And yet they're getting on a plane, not realizing that maybe they're about to impact right. their futures. Right. But but and, you see you see it is very simple you know I mean for um, as long as I'm in the in the tax business I always found it really amusing that the United States calls it a green card lottery you know when in fact it is not a green card lottery it is uh, how to find a taxpayer <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean in in Germany I mean clients of mine they have won the green card and I was sitting in the boardroom with them rolling my eyes saying if you activate that card you are in the US tech space you know <laughs> so so by simply accepting a green card lottery getting a green card you know it has an impact it has a significant impact so the same you know when you when you when you board that plane in Los Angeles with all your belongings to arrive in Auckland and uh, settle in a beautiful beautiful property that has an impact for a lot of other baggage you have in your uh, in your luggage you know <laughs> yes well it's yeah. interesting isn't it it's like the it's both ways it's people yeah. coming to New Zealand but it's also kiwis new zealanders who maybe are wanting to move to the states and then maybe they do get a green card they're there for two months they realize yeah. this is not for them they come back to new zealand but guess what you're in the net of yep. uh, taxpayers yep. so yep. yeah and uh, you see especially i mean the the issue you always have in 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 uh for people who are born in the united states or people who are u.s citizen the issue you have is that new zealand doesn't have a capital gains tax and uh, New Zealand's policy framework is broad-based, low rates. And suddenly these people realize, oh, I sold a couple of property. Oh, my God, now I pay income tax in the United States. And guess what? The U.S. will also clip my business income by Social Security tax of 15.6%. So that is a, it's a bitter pill. <laughs> Yeah, you you the green the green is an attractive color, but maybe allowing you more than you think will yep. come. And yep. can I? We're getting towards the end here, but I'm just curious, like to convert a company from an LLC to a C corp, is that quite a complicated thing, or is it relatively easy to do? Uh, it is. Uh, I understand it. It is a pretty easy way to do. Uh, what a lot of U.S. advisors are concerned of is they use the term double taxation, and they use that term uh, when you think about it. If an entity is liable for tax, an entity needs to pay income tax on their profit, and when that profit is allocated to the shareholder, the net dividend might again be taxed. 
So, so that is where, where in the United States, the U.S. advisor will come up and say, use the term domestic double taxation. But um, that is always the situation where you where you have that argument, you know, uh, please don't forget the person lives in New Zealand. And if we are not doing this, uh, then we enter another tragedy. Because also the alternative is that you simply seize directorship and you give the directorship to someone else. But that has always that argument, I don't want to give control away. And here we are back at that point. If you exercise control while you are in New Zealand, the entity becomes a tax resident. And, you know, I for me, uh, for me, I really urge people to think about this before they arrive in New Zealand, you know, yeah. uh, beca because... You don't want to have a situation. I mean, I came across a couple of migrants with significant wealth sitting in U.S. LLCs, and uh, it is a really difficult decision. And they need to consider um, whether or not uh, living in New Zealand is a viable option or whether it is too expensive. Yeah, no, that's right. And I guess um, when they arrive off the plane here, is that the day that it would be counting from? Or what would be the trigger to say, like, yeah, could they say, well, I'm just here for a holiday. I just visited for a month or two months or nine months. <laughs> yeah, you see, an individual wouldn't be a tax resident of New Zealand if an individual is here for a couple of months, you know. Um, yeah. So. In individually, when you think about an individual person, when an, a person becomes a New Zealand tax resident, when a person has a permanent place of abode in New Zealand, and that is a home, or when a person is 184 days in New Zealand in any 12-month period. So, yeah. um, uh, uh, I mean, if if you sell your, if you rent your house in Los Angeles and you pack your bags and you arrive in New Zealand, it is pretty clear that you create a new home in New Zealand. And okay, there are legally, it, it's not black and white, and there's a lot of gray. Um, but when you rely on the gray, you are on very thin ice. <laughs> I, yes. I would I would prefer to get this sorted before the people are arriving in New Zealand. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Well, that was why I wanted to chat with you because we did have a great discussion. And I, for many people, I'm the voice of this podcast, but I'm also a lawyer who helps people get legal structures right. But I'm not your type of lawyer. I'm not. I'm not somebody yeah. who specializes in the accounting treatment and things. So yeah, I was really yeah. interested to hear your perspective and yeah. wanted yeah. to dive a bit deeper. And and like I said, this isn't a normal podcast in the sense of we've gone super deep into um, yeah. the tax treatment of immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. But I really appreciate your, your insights there. And I have a feeling it's going to help some people and maybe be a bit of a wake up call for some people as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you see, um, the, 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 the second consideration is simply uh, you know, what is happening after four years. And um, very often you need to have that discussion. I mean, if if people, are, if, if people are doing that tax discussion before they arrive in New Zealand, you also need to consider what is happening to my US wealth once the four years are over. 
you know, mm. because that is a point in time where people simply need to understand how is my 401k tax? How is my IRA tax? What am I doing with my Roth IRA? Um, and how's my, my, my uh, wealth, my cash sitting in a bank account? What is that triggering for tax purposes? And mm. um, that is something uh, people need to understand to do an informed decision. And it all comes back to the point um, broad base, low rates. So New Zealand, for example, taxes capital gains in currency, regardless of whether or not they are realized or not realized. And that is also something which is quite difficult to understand. Mm. But that, form, that would form part of that discussion, um, uh, what needs to take place to ensure we are future proof for New Zealand and we are not um, having an adverse tax consequence after four years. Yeah, no, it's really a good point. There's kind of multiple entry, you know, the entry point is important and then the four years is important and yeah. being aware of it is such a, you know, forewarned is forearmed to, yep. to just know that things are coming. Um, and if people are interested in finding out more, what would be the best way for them to do that? Would it be a website or? Yeah. Yeah, I mean the um, uh, Inland Revenue. Inland Revenue has published a very a couple of very good booklets uh, for migrants to New Zealand, um, which gives you an overview of the weirdness of the New Zealand tax system. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then it needs to be assured that their U.S. advisor understands how the treaty works. Uh, and also they probably would need to reach out to a New Zealand advisor um, to ensure they are treated correctly. So that uh, is simply uh, simply a requirement. So the um, uh, the booklets are on the international side of, of Inland Revenue, and they are pretty good. They give you a good overview. And also Inland Revenue has issued a questionnaire uh, which is a yes/no questionnaire, uh, and it also indicates uh, every time you answer something with yes that uh, it is an area where you need to investigate how will it be taxed. Mm. Well, that's really good. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes we'll put some information and some links. So if you think of anything that would be helpful, we yeah. can add that so people can find it. And that's then if you're true. open to it, we'll put some how people could contact you if they felt yeah. like they needed that sort of support, because clearly we've heard your life story and, you know, you were involved in actually drafting some of these uh, regulations and rules and and clearly um, know a lot about this area. So, um, Peter, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate um, your you're giving us some insights and wisdom into this. But I also really enjoyed hearing about your childhood hearing about the Roman architecture mm -hmm. and the sense, you know, of thinking of our place in history, where yeah. do we sit in the bigger scheme of things? So thank you for your time and joining me today. No, thank you for giving me the possibility to have that chat with you um, and ensure uh, people have the, you know, people have all the information they need uh, before they make decisions which have an impact uh, to their family and their life. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter. And some of you are probably wondering if you need to get some advice. There are some resources in the show notes, so have a look at those. And really the key theme here is make sure you're understanding what it is that you're doing when you get on the plane to come and live in New Zealand. If you enjoyed this, then why not tell one other person about the content? Until next time. Mm -hmm.